the parable of the prodigal son. Well, I knew it had been coming, drawing closer every week, but the pressure began last Sunday evening as soon as the parabolic lost coin and, and sheep were found. Justin Kelly sidled up to me after last week's service and said with great surprise, so they gave you the big one. Bill Herman called me up the next day. Our phone call concluded, well, there's my advice, whatever happens, it's the prodigal son. I'm sure it'll be a home run or a six or whatever you guys call it. And so by Tuesday afternoon, I was becoming a little bit anxious. I had not even had time to look at Luke 15 just yet. And so I turned to my faithful friend and our senior pastor, and I opened the door that connected our two studies together, and he gave me the following advice. Don't worry about it. I'm sure it's a sermon that you've been preparing for all your Christian life. I nodded. I, I gave a little thumbs up, slowly closed the door behind me. As I returned to my desk, I was tempted to find comfort in the words of the English literature professor, John Warner, who told his students, don't read the best, most famous stories. Read the ones that resonate for you. If a stringed instrument is at rest and you play the proper tone at the proper frequency, the strings start to vibrate. This is known as resonance as I see it. Readers are similar. We are strings at rest in search of stories with which we resonate. And what produces this phenomenon in different individuals is as variable as we would expect from a diverse culture. The story is not there to judge us. If a story is not resonating, that's fine. Put it down and search for something else that meets your frequency. Don't read the best, most famous stories. Read the ones that resonate for you. Well, for some of you here, you may not know that this story is the best and probably Jesus' is most famous. Perhaps coming to church for you is an opportunity to explore uh, some other world's stories, and so you'll give me at least five minutes before putting this one down. But for others of us here, perhaps the fact that it is the, the best, most well-known, a story you've known since you were little, gives you a subtle desire to put it down immediately and find something else that meets your frequency, a story that is perhaps less passé. But friends, whoever we are, we cannot do that. Because whether we see ourselves as culturally unchristian as, as an Indian sitar, or as culturally Christian as an American guitar, whenever this parable is strummed, it shall resonate with all who read it well. Because quite simply, it is the story of every reader. In it, there are three characters. We shall look at each. One character is the father, who represents God. But the other two, his two sons, represent us. And so by the end, whoever we are, we shall find ourselves resonating with one son or the other. And so let me read our story and play the frequency of our first character to see if he resonates with you. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word? Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had on a journey. 
into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Please be seated. The first character, the first son, the first point of, of resonance perhaps for you this evening, the son who was reckless. The son who was reckless. The, the crescendo of this boy's demise is found at the end of verse 13. There he squandered all his property in reckless living. And yet this son's recklessness is, is evidenced long before his misadventures on the road. For as soon as the story starts, we, we hear of a most reckless request, verse 12, that the younger son said to his father, Father, give me a share of property that is coming to me. Now, on the surface, the request might not sound that bad. Some may see him as some kind of entrepreneurial inspiration, a confident little bird that desires to forego the safety of the family nest and draw down what is rightfully his so he can fly on his own. But the truth and the attitude underlying the request, as everyone in Jesus' day would have understood, is more than just impatience and overconfidence. For this boy wants his birthright right now, and he won't wait. He shall soon inherit the earth, but he wants the earth of today and not tomorrow. And so he dreams of his father's last testament being read out. And friends, that... That is what the Bible calls sin. Some picture sin as, as something evidently ghastly, like a bloodthirsty Halloween costume. Others picture sin as something uh, a bit indulgent, like eating too much Halloween candy. But the heart of sin, found in the heart of all normal people like, like you and, and me, resonates in this son's request. We can make sound, sin sound very polite. Would you mind if I, I, just, I just took the gifts and... and, and possibly ignored the giver. But a more honest version is, dear heavenly Father, I want your land and not you. Sin at root is dead. I wish you were dead. The start of all human recklessness is this request, whether audibly or silently, we, we pray in our hearts, God, I, I want to share the property now. I'll take being fatherless if it means I can have your stuff and not you. And where does it lead? Well, the reckless request leads to a reckless destination. For after the father has emptied all the savings account and sold the tractor with a heavy heart so that his boy can have cash on hand, verse 13, soon the son journeyed to a far country. You see, it is not enough for this son to have autonomy, not enough for the son to make him legally fatherless, as soon as he has his cash, that the son must run far. He does not head to local bars. He does not hire hometown prostitutes. He does not gamble his fortune at nearby casinos. The son seeks a far country. And again, do we not resonate with his sorry tale? For when we decide we do not want God as father, we, we cannot bear his fatherly gaze. Friends, let me tell you, 
from first-hand experience that that is often the first sign of wandering from home. The first sign that you want to live as though God were dead is that you want to be as far away from him as possible. That's why those who are set on sin struggle to read their Bibles. They secretly want to be out of, of earshot of their heavenly father. It's why those who are set on sin struggle so much to pray. They don't want to make regular calls home anymore. It's why those who are set on sin begin to struggle to make church. They don't want to risk the guilt of bumping into the father's servants at work. The son's reckless request leads to a reckless destination, a far country. And you know, today that, that far country does not have to be literal. It was in my day. In the late 90s, that the far-off country for a, a young man was a Southeast Asian country. Alex Garland's 1996 novel turned Hollywood hit. The beach was, was all the rage. Every British lad with uptight parents wanted to be a backpacker like Leonardo DiCaprio. Wanted a year of freedom before college. Wanted a year of beaches and, and beer and brothels. And perhaps you resonate with that. You sit here as a dutiful teenager this evening, but you just can't wait. You just can't wait to be free from restrictive mom and dad and, and to be literally exploring far-off worlds and wild living. Or perhaps you listen to Faithfully on Zoom this evening, but you're really looking to escape this church soon. You're not coming back and you say in your heart, just, just, just leave me alone. Let me do as I please. But you know, today you don't need a passport for a far-off country. You don't need to, to physically leave this church. The far-off lands are often just a click, internet click away. Or maybe COVID. Maybe COVID has provided you with your passport. That means that, that you may run off to those lands but be home before bedtime. I'd be amazed if there were not people right now listening to this, right now here in this room, who are not secretly in some far-off land. And if so, if that is you, can you see what happens there? Verse 13. There he squandered his property in reckless living. You see, the reckless request leads to a reckless destination and, and finally leads to a wrecked life. Now, no doubt there were brief moments when this recklessness was, was absolutely exhilarating. Certainly in this boy's first few weeks away from home, it was fun that the new Corvette felt so fast and, and the expensive jacket felt so snug and, and the drugs that he had brought found, gave him newfound ecstasy. There was perhaps a wonderful freedom. When the son realized that he could now write whatever he wanted to on his, on his growing Twitter feed without having to think about his father's business, there were new hedonistic hits that he never experienced when he gorged himself on lavish food and threw the dice at the, at the, at the top casino table when gorgeous women in, in glamorous dresses gathered all around him. But eventually, verse 14, the money runs out. And verse 15, soon he has no food to gorge upon. He throws not dice at the top table, but seed pods at the bottom of the field. The girls are gone and only the dirty pigs gather in his presence. Friends, this is where our reckless request leads. This is the results of sin in 4K ultra high definition. Sin promises us the top table forever, but it soon sends us to the pigsty. 
Can you picture this boy in your mind's eye? What miserable consequences we experience spiritually, physically, emotionally, socially when we leave home. As the BD Anuile writes, every sinful life is a riches to rag story. If you live for yourself, you'll soon live by yourself. For not only does sin send us to the lonely pigsty, but often it makes us live there alone for months and months. As our daily surroundings remind us that it, it is all our fault. Indeed, who knows how long this boy stays here. Well, certainly he does not return home as soon as the money runs out, does he? No, he does everything he can. He does everything he can before returning home. He does not ponder the recklessness of his ways until his face is down in the trough of the pigs. Until he is so down, he can fall no further. And friends, that is often how sin works. It is often only when we come to an end of ourselves that we consider our former home. His slowness to get up is a reminder to all who pray for the reckless that repentance is not often quick, that the sinner often has to feel the, the pangs of hunger for a while. But finally, finally his reckless request, which led to a reckless destination, which led to a wrecked life, finally leads to a reckless hope, a crazy hope, a wild hope. Verse 18, what if I went home? What if I went to my father? What if I confessed? What if I said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son? Maybe, just maybe, I could be treated like a slave. Friends, are you resonating with this reckless son? In truth, is this your story? It was certainly mine. And if not, who are you? And where are you this evening? Are you really one who has never left home? Are you really one who believes that the money will never run out? Or if the truth be told, is this you right now? Down amongst the pigs, feeding on scraps. You've had your fun, you remain starving. You've had your fling, you're about to be outed. You've had your fight with those who've sought after you, and now you're all alone, and you want to come home. Oh, my friend, if that resonates with you, then, then you're ready to meet our second character. Point two, the father who ran. Character two, the father who ran. Verse 20, look down with me. And there he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In most of the parables in Luke's gospel, we note that Jesus is not really one for much poetic, detailed imagery. The sower went to sow, Luke 8. A man had a fig tree, he came seeking fruit, Luke 12. A man once gave a banquet, he invited many, Luke 14. Many of Jesus' characters are rather plain, but the imagery and the description here is vibrant. If Jesus wanted to only describe the two sons, we might imagine at Jesus as the, as the film director cutting from the pigsty scene to the scene where the, the son stands at the front porch. 
But in verses 20 to 24, the director's cut, we get the most detailed illustration in the New Testament of what God the Son knows God the Father to be like. And friends, what a description it is. No doubt many of us naturally picture God as a a kind of fatherly-like figure. Yet how many grasp and marvel at Jesus' description of his Father here? For we are to imagine here an, an elderly father pacing the walls of his high hillside farm, losing hours of work each day to constant glances down the hill, and then one day he sees a, a tiny speck in the distance. It bears all the hallmarks of his reckless son. And the old man does what no dignified Israeli old man would ever do. He runs. The old man runs to the end of his drive. He's tired already, but this father runs on. His old man feet pound down the hillside with all the grace of a sack of wet cement, and this father runs on. His eyes loosen, and his head starts to bob, and and the little children in the village below start to laugh, but this father runs on. His neighbors now start to come out of their houses. And they shake their heads at the mere possibility of this shameful reunion. But this father runs on. He replays the last time he saw his son. His boys are pulling requests for his early death. But this father runs on. The son sees the father. The son stops in his tracks. And his rags flap in the breeze like the finishing tape. And this father runs on. And as he gets closer, no doubt he breathes in the stench of all his recklessness. Pig manure and mud and body odor. His son smells like a vagabond. But his father runs on and into his son's arms. And he covers his tear-drenched face with kisses. Friends, if you are new here, that is Christianity. That is the gospel. True Christianity is is not a religion of us running. Us running about looking morally busy. Us running back to church, back and forth for Christmas and Easter. Us on a religious walk, on a religious pilgrimage. Us crawling on our knees up the the Scala Scanta, the, the, the Holy Roman Catholic staircase in the city of Rome to embrace a polished golden cross at the top. No. Christianity is our father running to us, his reckless sons and daughters, and embracing us in all our filth. Friends, maybe maybe God is running towards you this very evening. Let me assure you that if you confess your recklessness, the divine is ready to embrace you, All he requires is that you turn to him in in sorry repentance and and trust in his son's work. In the 1600s, the Puritan minister, Thomas Watson, put it like this to his London congregation. He said, "Thou, Though thou hast been a prodigal and spent all upon thy lusts, yet if thou wilt give a bill of divorce to thy sins and flee to God by repentance, no, that he hath the compassion of a father. He will embrace thee 
in the arms of his mercy and seal thy pardon with a kiss. What sins of yours have been so heinous, the wound is not so broad as the plaster of Christ's blood. Therefore, do not be discouraged. Go to God. The father who ran who ran and embraced, and yet there is more. There is more in this beautiful Jesus-painted picture here for our souls to feed on. For did you notice what the son, sorry, what the father says to the son in the midst of the embrace? Look with me again at verse 20. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And verse 22, the father spoke to who? To his servants and not to his son in reply. You see, friends, though we may keep on recounting our sins and often struggle to forget, our reckless request that we once asked and the reckless land in which we once lived, the Father seeks not a conversation with us about our lost days from which we have repented. No doubt even the best, even the most forgiving earthly father here would no doubt reply to their son, well, yes, you, you did let us dead us down. Honestly, we're still a bit disappointed. And perhaps a few years later, can I remind you of where you once were? But as the truly repentant, the Heavenly Father says nothing at all. The Father speaks to his servants here. The Father speaks later to the elder son, but he has not one word for the son who was once lost and is now found, friends. And we confess our sins to God. He will not torture us with memories of our past. Godless people may do that to us, accepting us back but always seeing us in the state we once were, but not God. The new covenant promises are Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful and, and I will remember their sins no more. The father who ran, who ran and embraced, ran and was silent and finally ran with riches and rejoicing, the Father commands not one servant but many to bring out all the family riches here. The best robe, verse 22, the first century robe normally kept for the best formal occasions, a gown that would cover all the dirt and, and make one swell with pride. A robe like Christ's righteousness is placed upon his shoulders. And then verse 22, a ring, a ring which was usually the, the seal of family membership. A ring like the seal of the Holy Spirit is placed upon his finger and shoes, verse 22. Shoes, symbols of great wealth, are slid onto poor, weary souls. And then verse 23, because this is the best day in the father's life, the cherished fattened calf is killed. For the father not only runs and, and restores and gives riches, but he rejoices. He rejoices when his children return. Verse 24, let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but he's found. Friends, if you still resonate with this son, please resonate with the music that the father still plays over you. It may be years, maybe decades since that moment when you first walked home. And after a thousand more seasons of recklessness and wandering, you may wonder whether he celebrates you at all. But friend, even you, you may enjoy his riches this day and remember that that gospel music still plays for you. For the father does not just let his son borrow his jacket once, 
take him to a McDonald's drive-thru and then play a three-minute pop song and then it's done. The robe and the ring of sonship remain on us forever. And the one and only fattened calf is killed for all sin. And when this parable ends, the music plays on and on and on. Friends, if you've forgotten how much the Father loves those who return to him, why not carve out some time this week to ponder the Father's riches that you still have, to ponder the Father's rejoicing, which does not stop over you, though you returned to him long ago, though you are still tempted to leave home. Ponder the son who was reckless and the father who ran. Well, friends, I could stay here many more minutes resonating with the music at the father's party, for I know that I am the reckless son. But as time marches on, our story is not quite complete, and I'm conscious that maybe, just maybe, you, you haven't resonated with our story yet. If that is so, then know that there is another son, another son which is almost certainly you. Point three, character three, the son who refused. The son who refused. Verse 25, please follow with me. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, he was angry and refused to go in. Why does the elder brother refuse? Or, or rather, who does the elder brother refuse? Well, firstly, he refuses his once lost, now found brother. Because the servant sees how the reckless has been treated by the father, he describes in verse 27 as your brother. But how does the elder brother describe the reckless to his father? Verse 30, this son of yours, this son of yours is no brother of mine because, verse 30, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. How on earth can you throw a party for him? How can you welcome him into our house? Is your memory failing, old man? Do you not remember what he did? You know, one of, one of the many ways that we can discern who Jesus aimed his parables at is to look at the context of each of them. For often in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable in response to what someone shouts out to him. And this parable is no different, for if we reverse all the way back to verse 1, we see why Jesus tells this story. Indeed, we understand that actually uh, this whole story, and the last two stories as well, have been building to this counter punchline. For Jesus, verse 1, was hanging out with tax collectors. That is, those who cheated the poor as they worked for the Roman government. And Jesus had been seen with sinners, those who were known for public acts of evil and gross sexual immorality. It is the equivalent of the one who, who, who hangs out at Starbucks with past employees of, a, of abortion clinics and pornography moguls, and racist proud boys. And so the Pharisees grumble, verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you hear that grumbling? Resonates with the, with the eldest son's wrath. This man throws parties and eats 
with the reckless. Friends, does such grumbling resonate with you? Which son are you really? Let me ask you, is there anything that someone could do that would bar them from our church if they were genuinely repentant of it? Indeed, is there a person who has already left our church who you'd really rather not see return even if they wanted to come back? Because that would ruin your notion of who's really in the family and would somehow cast dispersions on what a faithful son you've been. What if there was an unbelieving visitor today, here? Someone who was the year 2020 opposite of you. Someone who was the opposite skin color and sex as you. Someone who had voted the opposite way as you. Someone who did the opposite regarding coronavirus as you. One who had opposing struggles and desires and joys as you. One who even supported the opposing sports team as you. What if that unbeliever very obviously repented right here, right now, this evening? What would you say as you got into the car afterwards? Would your immediate reaction be rejoicing? Would you thank God and and whistle amazing grace as you turn down Old Hickory Boulevard? Or would you silently grumble to yourself, well, well, we'll see. See if the elders think it's genuine. See if they really should be baptized. Friends, can you see how our refusal to accept other reckless sons and daughters, those who in reality are just like us, is often the clearest window into who we are in this story. On one level, it might not seem that dangerous to us, but can you see where where such refusal leads? In the same way that that recklessness led somewhere, can you see where this refusal leads? For this son's refusal of his own brother immediately leads to his refusal of his own father. His father comes out, verse 28, to entreat him. His father is always kindness and grace personified. And in verse 31, his father gently reminds him that he is his son. And he's always with him. And that all he has is is his. But this son does not answer back with a father. No, he answers back with a look. Verse 29, look. Look, all these years I've served you. And I've never disobeyed your command. Can you see that the fact that he never calls him father is very fitting for he sees him as a slave master who he has served and a command giver that he's always obeyed. In reality, this son's relationship with his father is based neither on birth nor on grace, but on his work and his religious effort and his own obedience And friends, it is something that we all struggle with until we understand, until we we see what we picture the gospel to be, until we see it as the father who runs to us and not the son who works for him. For did you notice that even when the reckless son sees his sin, what does he try to do when he returns? He says to his father, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please treat me as one of your hired servants until he sees his father running to him in grace. Even the reckless son will not accept a simple sonship. He would rather stand 
on his own self-righteousness, even then. And as for the elder brother, sadly, he never lets go. He is a self-righteous son to the very end. And we know that because like all self-righteous people, he not only finds fault with his heavenly father's grace, he not only hates the idea of no longer being able to say, alas, look at the empty chair at our kitchen table, dad. I'm so sorry that you had to have a son like that, but don't worry because I'm here again today to serve the family business for another week and to work very hard in your fields. But ultimately, we know that he is self-righteous because he is furious. He is furious when it looks as though his father treats the reckless better. In reality, that the whole farm is his forever. But he wants the same short-term earthly delights as his younger brother once did. His self-righteous heart is laid bare in verse 29. You never gave me a young goat to celebrate. Father, I can't believe you don't give me more. For all my chastity in my teenage years, for all my conservatism in my 20s, for my charity in my 30s, how can you give that sinner a spouse and a lovely house and obedient children and a well-paid job? What do I get? Friends, hold up the mirror of this passage. Could this be you here? Could it be that, that a lack of, of sinful wandering in your life, certainly what much little wandering in recent years and now many years of faithful service has actually caused you to believe that you deserve much better here in the here and now? Could it be that, that a sonship once based on grace has now somewhere along the line become a business transaction with a boss where your disservice, your service deserves a pay rise? How do you see God today? Has he become a slave master, a lawgiver to you? Or do you see him as the gracious father who has given you far more than you deserve? Well, our time is gone. And so let us finally see that the son who refuses his brother is the son who refuses his father. And very finally, the son who refuses to come in. This chapter 15, this, this famous chapter finishes as the, as, the, as the curtain falls on Jesus' amazing story, we, we, we do not know what finally happens. Perhaps we like to imagine an imaginary verse 33 where the elder son smiles and hugs his gracious dad, or we like to picture the end of the evening and the eldest son has his arm over his younger brother and they're, they're parting to some 1980s hit that they used to listen to together growing up. But the truth, of course, is we don't know. Jesus leaves the parable tantalizing unfinished just that each reader may ask who they are. And yet when we remember that this elder brother is a picture of a Pharisee, a self-righteous, moral, religious person, the hope of a happy ending begins to fade. For you see, just eight chapters later, the same people that cursed Jesus for his grace and mercy are the same people who crucify him at Golgotha. And hence, if our story was to continue on, it would not end with this son smiling at his father, but horrifically with his son stabbing his father and running a farm where his brother was not welcome. This son is hence lost 
forever. The English literature professor John Warner, that I mentioned at the very start, said to his students, don't read the best, most famous stories. Read the ones that resonate for you. If a story is not resonating, that's fine. The story is not there to judge us. The problem is, is that the story of Jesus Christ, to which this parable points again and again, is not just a story. It is the story. The story that happened 2,000 years ago that each one of us gets not only to resonate with, but gets a part in. And hence we are to understand this story, this, this, this best, most famous story, as a story that will judge us all. It is not a story that we can tune out. We will accept our recklessness and let God run to us or we will refuse him and even kill him if we can. Which son are you? Let's pray. Father, we see that the, the choice is stark. No doubt we secretly know which son we are. Father, would you remind us of your running, of your riches, of your rejoicing, of your reward, of your amazing grace. And would you help us to accept our recklessness and so be those lost sons and daughters of grace that are now found. Father, we confess so much self-righteousness. Even as those who are once saved those welcomed home as your children. Would we not refuse you in self-righteousness? Instead, may we revel in your grace this day and every day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.